Hi, welcome to another episode of Women Among Them, a podcast discussing female artists with female artists. Um, the goal of this podcast is that within each episode, we'll learn about the lady artist being interviewed and kind of her female influences throughout her journey. Um, I'm your host, Heather Sino, and this week our guest is Dr. Lillian Lewis, an assistant professor of art education at Youngstown State University in Youngstown, Ohio. So, hi Lillian. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. This is exciting. Yeah, uh, thanks for being had. What? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes. So, go ahead. Just like, you talk about you. Okay, so... I think when we talked about this before, you were interested in a little bit about my background, and then we'll talk some about my work and influences and things like that. Um, So as far as background, I uh, I was raised um, in Texas, and I was born in in a town called Denton. It's about 45 minutes north of Dallas. So it's considered part of the Dallas-Fort Worth metro area, and I lived there for the first five years of my life, and then I moved to really rural Texas, <laughs> and uh, like there were about two thousand people in the town that I lived in, and uh, it was and there was no there was no art, there was there were very few college-educated people. It was mostly a farming community. And so that was interesting. Football was a really big deal. Oh, yeah. We were the Cisco Lobos. What's so a Lobos? A Lobo is, Lobo is Spanish for wolf. Oh, so fierce. Yeah. yeah, it was a really great-looking uh, mascot. We were a terrible team, though. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's the extent of my remembrance of growing up in Cisco. I did make a few. Um, I have a few childhood friends I still keep up with, which is weird. But I kind of early on... Got the reputation of being the artsy kid in class. Um, one of my favorite memories is that we had a uh, we had a drawing contest on actual chalkboards, which I think don't exist anymore. In fourth grade, and we were supposed to draw the most fearsome dragon, and and I totally blew away the competition. Nice. Had the best dragon, so might have been one of my crowning achievements as an artist. But. <laughs> Fourth grade. Um, right, yeah, Definitely fourth grade. Peaked. Yeah, that was my zenith. It's just been downhill ever so slowly since then. So proud of you. Yeah, thank you, thank you. It's, I appreciate that. Uh, let's see, so from Cisco, I moved to Brownwood, which is, I think, 17 miles from dead center in the heart of Texas. So it's called the heart of Texas. If you put your finger on a map of Texas, you probably have your finger somewhere around Brownwood. And that's about all it has going for it. It's not a super rockin' town. It's, um, it is also kind of a lot of farmers. It also has a huge 3M plant. Most of the glass beads that make reflective signs are made in Brownwood, Texas. Whoa. Yeah, so. Yeah, really exciting. Thank you, um, Brownwood. They, they also have a giant Kohler factory where they make a lot of toilets. Okay, so that's cool, though. Yeah, it was kind of cool. <laughs> um, the coolest part of the of the uh, toilet factory is that all of the defective toilets are taken to a giant landfill, and they're broken apart so people don't steal the defective toilets. What? So there's a giant mountain of sparkling ceramic toilet. Um, near that town of Brownwood. It's near a shooting range, which is really funny. So if you can survive getting through the shooting range, you can get to the Toilet Mountain 
and it's can very you, can you shoot the toilets you can off? yeah if you have a long range rifle you can shoot the toilets from the shooting range which some people do that's so, awesome yeah it's pretty exciting <laughs> it's very texas um and most of the toilets are white but there are also you know of course some pastel colors mixed in there and and some modern colors so it's it's actually kind of pretty if you're into that sort of thing <laughs> um anyway um, I've graduated from Howard Payne University. I think I'm getting ahead of myself. I did actually have an art teacher once. Uh, I had an art teacher in high school. And so I was kind of excited to know that such a thing could exist. I didn't yeah. know that there were art teachers in school. That was the first time for me. I always loved art. And I always was kind of a maker. I, I, would like, to, um, I like to make clothes for dolls. I like to make... Um, casts for my Barbies. I used to, I used to, oh, let me explain that. Okay. So I used to have an erector set and I would make vehicles for my Barbies. And then I would, and I would, sh and then I would throw the Barbies on the vehicles down the street and, and have them crash into things. And yeah. because eighties Barbies have their arms permanently bent the elbow, I felt it made sense to use toilet paper and Elmer's glue to give them all double casts because yeah. obviously they've been seriously injured. Yes. In, That's a good logical step. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, mm -hmm. this is just the kind of thought process of a kid who has um, not a lot of outlet for creative <laughs> thinking um, and, and very, very patient, permissive parents. My yeah. mom is a writer, and <clears throat> or I should say was a writer. Um, she, is now, uh, she is now a tough-as-nails stroke survivor, so she doesn't really write anymore, but she... Um, until she had the stroke, she wrote poetry. She was an avid um, poet. And then my dad was a history professor. And uh, actually, I would attribute sort of my interest in art to my parents' willingness to not dissuade me from art. Yeah. So neither of my parents were artists. And really, there were no artists in my community and no art in K-12 schools until I got to high school. But my parents always um, sort of supported my habit, if you will. Yeah. Um, they didn't buy a lot of art supplies, but they never really said no. So they let me, I think especially when it came to building things, my dad was an avid gardener. He grew up in rural Texas, um, and his whole family, like his father was a professional cowboy for most of his life. And then he got into um, the oil industry. He he he. he got really lucky and got a couple of leases and drilled a couple of wells and went from being basically, they went from being pretty much dirt poor to uh, middle class. And it was a huge um, transformation for my dad because it allowed my dad to be the first person in his family to go to college. And, um, but he never really kind of shook the dirt from uh, his feet. He always was like tied with outdoor stuff, always planting trees. Every place we ever lived, he planted fruit trees um, and always had a, you know, a, a big vegetable garden. He really felt strongly about providing for his family, not just financially, but literally would grow us food and would can food and would cook. My dad was a big cook. Um, my mom tried to cook, but she was also like kind of a hardcore feminist. And she, we had a housekeeper because she's like, I am a, you know, I'm a I professional woman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's like, I'm going to live my life. I'm a writer. I am, you know, I'm a professional woman and I, um, I'm going to focus on that and yeah. spend time with my kids. And she, she also really invested in, um, extracurricular stuff for us. So my younger sister and I got to do a lot of 
theater and voice and piano lessons and and my and she also at one point paid for me to take oil painting lessons with this wacky old lady and all I remember is that she was she was really insistent on a repetition of color and she would say while we were painting in the class it was like me and about four other kids and she would say Pete and repeat are sitting on a fence Pete falls off who's left and that was like her way of saying, if you use a color once in the composition, you have to use it again. Yeah. You can never use a color just once yeah. in a composition. It was a strange... That's my one <laughs> takeaway from, from that art class. But Anyway, so that was a little more of a tangent. But, it, but it, suffice it to say, I got to undergrad. I went to a private Baptist undergrad because it was free, and my dad was a history teacher there. Nice. And it was the first time I had real studio classes, and I didn't have any idea that people came to studio classes with portfolios from high school. I had no idea that was a thing. <laughs> so I came in at this huge disadvantage. All these You're like, people. I have a pencil. Yeah, I'm like, I've been drawing, um, but I was entirely self taught. So I have very idiosyncratic drawing still to this day. Like, I really, like, I've had formal drawing classes, and I know now how to draw well, but I had really weird style of drawing and if I draw cartoons, my cartoons are still very much kind of in a, you know, decades of just drawing whatever you feel like drawing, however you know to draw it. Yeah. And, um, so, yeah, and I don't do, like, 2D kind of is not my, 2D is a means to an end. It's a way of mapping ideas for me. And that's what I realized in undergrad is that I, um, I think my uh, one of my professors had a really nice way of putting it in painting class. She spent a long time looking at my painting, and then she said, "You know, you're really good at 3D." <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I'm not really sure. So I still try to push myself to paint, and I, I often kind of come away with the same conclusion. I am really good at 3D. Um, I, you know, I grew up uh, outdoors with my parents, tinkering, taking things apart, putting things back together, helping my dad fix things around the house. Um, we also had a little farm that we leased um, and we raised cows and we did all kinds of like very agricultural things that you do in Texas. And so I, you know, I was always interested in repurposing materials. I would collect all the um, baling wire from our square bales and, and make sculptures from those. And I was just always kind of a hands-on making person I always and I was always a collector I've always picked up things that I find so I think the natural thing that came out of that is that I started making found object sculptures and that sounds great right and I had this wonderful sculpture mentor in undergrad not so much <laughs> there was no sculpture professor at my <laughs> university while I was going to school there there was however a very patient and ingratiating ceramics professor and I said, I want to take a sculpture class. She said, hey, you know, we all want things in life, but we don't always get them. But I'll, I'll make you a deal. If you'll write yourself a special problems course, I'll let you do a hand-building course in ceramics that's sculptural. So I did that, and that was kind of the beginning of what I consider to be my artistic career. It was the first time where I really pushed a medium and really found that while ceramics, you know, in production ceramics didn't speak to me, I, I was mediocre on the wheel and only only with daily practice, it's just not a knack for me. I don't like replicating the same thing over and over again. Yeah. I don't find peace and meditation in that that I think some people do. Yeah. I have friends who are wheel potters who are great at that. That is just not my gift. Yeah. Um, 
So I did a lot of hand building. And after I graduated, I started, I worked in industry for a little while. I worked for a PR firm, Springbok Technologies, uh, in Richardson, Texas, which doesn't exist anymore. And Wait, it, Richardson doesn't exist? Or? Richardson exists. <laughs> Springbok does not exist. Springbok was um, sold and then and then quickly closed because I think it was a, a negotiated purchase to um, remove competition in the field. So oh. we were a niche um, marketing firm and we worked with... Um, we worked with sort of, uh, you know, start to finish uh, aspects of client services. So we would do um, brand identity. We would do full marketing packages. And at the time I was working for them, we were doing a ton of dot-com startups. So really companies that were kind of being invented for the purpose of speculative investment. Um, and at some point that kind of started to freak me out. So I left industry. Uh, because I had these high morals at that time, you know, I was like 23 years old and I thought, I'm a, I've got to be doing something better for humanity. Yeah. And um, I, I look back at that point in my life and laugh and I think, you know, I'm really like, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And I think I could have found things about design and there were some good projects that I did that I liked, but ultimately I wouldn't be here. So it was the right decision. And um, anyway... I ended up teaching public school. Nice. And I did not think that I, well, it is nice now. At the time, I didn't think I was competent to do it. I, I switched to the education program really late in my college career. And after I'd done all the design courses, and I thought, I'm not sure if I want to be a designer. And I was a single mom. I had my eldest child when I was 18, and my mom had become a teacher after she'd had a career with... Um, Department of Human Services. She went back and got her degree to teach. And she really, um, let's just say she strongly and persistently encouraged me to consider a career option that would provide a degree of economic security Yeah. for me as a single mom. And so I went through with it because I thought, you know, I can't, you know, it hurts to have a little bit more education. Yeah. And knowing full well, I would probably go into design after school, but I got the license anyway. So I did go into design, but then I thought, I don't think this is what I want to do. And I wanted to try teaching, even though I had like a awkward, like I really didn't, it didn't click for me in student teaching, um, but I thought I'd try it anyway. And I ended up liking it. Um, I actually ended up doing very well in teaching and I got, got a lot of recognition in my school for being good at what I did. And um, I, you know, I, I got, a lot of opportunities to work out into the community with kids and it got me excited to think about what else is possible in teaching. So I went to University of North Texas to get my master's degree um, and that's kind of where I circle back to the um, first interest I had in art. My dad taught history he used to teach this Western Civilization course every semester. It was kind of his stock course that, you know, everybody has to teach some high enrollment course. Yeah. And he always tried to, he was a glass half full kind of guy. And he always tried to make that something that was um, meaningful to non-majors. He really tried to get people excited about history and tried to help make it tangible and accessible. So he would take his students um, in Cisco, Texas uh, on a... 
two-hour bus ride to the Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth. And the Kimball's in this gorgeous Louis Kahn building, and um, it's got, I think their, their tagline is something like, uh, we collect uh, master artists or, ma or master, we collect masterworks or works by master artists. That's what it is, yeah. Nice. So, so it's, it's mostly encyclopedic and predominantly 2D. And he would check me out of school. He would call me in sick, actually. So my dad, who was pretty much the straightest shooter ever and um, was fundamentally an honest person, would call me in sick every semester and take me out of school to go to the museum with his students because he knew I loved art. Yeah. And he really wanted to nurture that. And um, it made a huge impact on me. So when I had an opportunity to... Um, apply to the Pretty Fellowship in Arts Leadership for a, a paid master's degree. Um, I, I took the opportunity because I wanted to go back and I wanted to find out what it meant to work in a museum. I'd been curious my whole life and I'd had this experience that was really meaningful working at the middle school level, teaching art, but I wanted to know what it meant to work with art on a daily basis. Yeah. So I did that. And subsequent to completing that degree, I went to, um, I spent one year actually back in cl in the classroom because I graduated from my master's in 2008 at a really convenient time for hiring. Um, and so because of the economic downturn, a lot of museums froze hiring. So mm -hmm. they had searches open, but then they closed searches. So I applied to over a dozen positions all over the US, I was willing to move, I was gonna do anything it took to get into an art museum, and it just didn't happen. So I went um, back to teaching classroom art for a year and continued to apply for other positions. And in the, in the middle of that year that I was teaching art in Florida, um, my younger sister passed away unexpectedly. And so around the same time, a job opened up in San Angelo, Texas, in an art museum. And under normal circumstances, I don't think I would have been excited about moving to West Texas. But because um, my mom was my mom was now by herself and was kind of dealing with losing her youngest child, yeah. it seemed like all of the right things happened simultaneously. I, I knew I didn't want to continue to be at that school um, because I was commuting 17 miles uh, I would drive east to get to work during the sunrise and west home oh, to work no. and there was just a lot of it was a tough school and it was you know there were some issues with the administration there a uh, year after I left that school 80% of the faculty and 100% of the administration were fired by the state of Florida because it was a really it was a tough school it was a failing school um, one of the people I was hired with uh, she and I kind of were tapped the year we were there to be mentors for other people who were hired because we were the only two teachers with prior experience who came in and she's still there. She's awesome, but she's the, she's literally the only person still there oh from gosh. when I worked there in 2009. And we stay in touch. Um, and she regularly reminds me that I can always come back. So <laughs> if I ever disappear, I'm probably in Florida. Um, but yeah, long story short, I ended up working in the San Angelo Museum of Fine Arts. And I was there for two and a half years. And then I went to, um, I think, you know, I just, I, I have this terrible habit of being insatiably curious. So I... Um, I'm like, okay, museums are great, but what else is out there? And I had always really, because my dad was a college professor, I knew it was possible. 
kind of felt like, you know, the whole process of engaging with research and and what research means in terms of satisfying that, you know, yeah. insatiable curiosity, this never-ending sort of hunger series. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just yeah, always <laughs> wanting to know more and yeah. always really wanting to know more about so many different aspects of my field, understanding the policies that dictate what education is, understanding the changing nature of what our education is, yeah, and also understanding um, sort of where art making and artistic process fits into art education. I was really fortunate um, at University of North Texas, the art education program is housed with the um, studio program and there's and and art history and so all three are kind of on a level playing field to some extent yeah the art education faculty is well respected and um and really there is not the kind of dichotomy that you see um, maybe in other places between studio and art education so i really always saw art making as something that was not exclusive um to studio only like yeah. there were a lot of our educators who were engaging in making and engaging in um sort of knowledge formation around contemporary art around contemporary criticism around um contemporary art history you know knowing about artists and incorporating that in substantial and really complex ways into k-12 education so when i was looking for graduate schools penn state was interesting to me because there's a similar relationship there. Um, and art education is housed in the School of Visual Arts. And the director of the School of Visual Arts at Penn State University, Graham Sullivan, is a working artist. And his work is highly conceptual. Uh, the previous director, um, Charles Gororian, is a performance artist. And both of them come from a tradition of um, active and vibrant exhibition and um, work. Yeah as well as being educators. And so it was important to me in looking for a PhD to go into a program that supported that, that really was gonna embrace the fact that I'm coming in as a maker and an educator. Right. And so I was pretty open about that when I applied. And I said, you know, I'm looking for studio space and I'm looking for opportunities to continue making. And I didn't officially get a MFA studio space um, because we had like a huge MFA co cohort that was a bunch of, there were a lot of superstars uh, at Penn State while I was there. And, um, but I did, I, w I worked with my faculty mentor, Steve Carpenter. Steve had a big studio space in the Arts Cottage at Penn State and he was really generous. And he said, anytime you have to make work, anytime there's anything you wanna work on, just let me know that you're down there so that I know why there's stuff in the space, <laughs> but my space is your space. That's awesome. And yeah, yeah, he was really fantastic. He is really fantastic. And um, supportive. Yeah. Like that seems yeah. so giving. He is, um well, and he's a maker as well. His yeah. you know, he has he has he's worked with um Potters of Slippery Rock and maintains a, a healthy relationship with Dick Wuchuk. and uh, he's retired um ceramics professor at Slippery Rock. And he's very involved with the Potters War Action Group. So Steve's work is um, I would say performance first, but it's also um, actual sculptural process. So he's worked a lot with um, Penn State Engineering to build a press mold that allows him to mix a proprietary clay blend 
with a combustible material to um, press mold ceramic water filters. And these water filters, when you fire them, the combustible material burns off, so they create a durable, porous um, container that allows you to pour rainwater or collected water into this container, and it'll filter out um, particulate matter. It also filters out protozoa and other um, organisms that are uh, implicated in, in um, lethal diarrhea effectively. Wow. So many of the waterborne illnesses um, are removed by this by just this manual filter process. They also coat the interior of all of those filters with colloidal silver. And the colloidal silver has an antimicrobial property to it that, um, that additionally helps purify the water. And these are good for anywhere from one to three years, depending on the frequency of use and the turbidity you know, and, and quality of the water. Oh. Won't remove environmental toxins such as insecticides and things like that. But if you're talking about trying to keep people alive, yeah. This this will get the job done. Yeah. And the the goal with this project is to um, a make functional water filters, but b issues with access to water, and people who had issues with access to basic services. And he's kind of expanded what that performance is about, but he's still very much um, engaged with the Potter's War Action Group and um, still sort of at, you know part of that conversation as well. Um, so uh, that's Steve, and my other mentor at Penn State, who's who is an active artist, is Charles Gorian. Uh, Charles was actually Steve's uh, graduate advisor or dissertation advisor. So it was, it was interesting to have that genealogy yeah. for my committee. Steve, Steve being my advisor, and Charles being kind of like the senior mentor in that process. And Charles is a performance artist. He's published, um, you know, he's published. Copiously, here's a performance pedagogy is one of his books, um, but he has quite a few since then. This is kind of an oldie. Uh, I think his most recent book is Prosthetic Pedagogy, where he's looking at sort of um, the, the philosophical view of prosthetics rather than just the tangible um, accessory to the body or, um, or wearable device. Anyway, high concept stuff. And yeah. a lot of what I think, like, when people think of Apple sweaters and scatterbrained craftivities and all the funky stereotypes of art education, I was really fortunate that I didn't have art education as a kid, so I didn't know that art educators were kind of a joke in K-12 schools. <laughs> and then I went to these schools that had these heavy-hitting, deeply conceptual active makers. Yeah. And so I... You know, I've, I've never questioned whether or not art education was about art making or whether or not art education was about high concepts and, and being a part of the contemporary art world. That said, um, throughout the process, you know, I started out, as I mentioned, um, making ceramic works as an undergrad. As I continued through teaching in various graduate programs, that work kind of morphed into ceramics with found objects. I returned back to that sort of the habit of collecting. And I incorporated those pieces into my works. And then slowly they became kind of more installation oriented because I kind of I wanted to create spaces for people to engage with those works yeah. in a more lived experience way, multimodally like the way that I experience them as I find them and encounter them and, and manipulate them. Yeah. And 
And then that, of course, in turn, um, as a result of working with Steve and Charles um, and other fabulous people at Penn State, um, became performance. And that's kind of where I am today. Yeah. And I know that you've mentioned to me before, like, your performance work. Um, I saw one of your pieces in a faculty show when you were first hired. Um, and I remember, like, interacting with it and being, like, moved by it. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that evolved? I think I would characterize my work as community-engaged scholarship. Um, at the end, and that kind of scholarship is about sort of honoring the community that you work in. And so I really made an effort for every piece that I make in, in sort of my, um, my recent bodies of work. Um, and really, first of all, I want to say I'm not a super prolific artist. So my turnaround on a piece is probably six months to a year. Honestly, some of these pieces have taken a year to fully develop Yeah. because I'm very interested in research. So much of the work is about conversations with people. It's about understanding different aspects of an issue, and it's about trying to kind of honor how I want people to potentially engage with the work. So not only what I want to say, but what I hope that people can kind of come away with and also to honor all the people involved in the process. So it's really important to me to um, find ways to kind of fold all those things in together. And in community-engaged scholarship, it runs kind of counter to the historical notion of academic as a solo artist or you know as, the, as, this, as this suffering genius and that you're toiling over your research and that you're the only one that's ever had this idea. There is this notion that in academia you have to have this sexy, unique research and that your research has to be distinct from anybody else's work, but it has to also fit within, you have to identify how it's relevant and necessary to your field. Yeah. And I'm not in disagreement with those things, but I have questions. <laughs> and I, you know, I would challenge that anybody has any idea in a vacuum. I really am a, um, I just believe objectivity is BS. I really, I don't think you can be objective. I cannot, I just cannot understand it. I only have five senses. There are absolute limitations to what I'm capable of understanding. Yeah. And I'm fallible, I'm human. I, I could be having an off day. And how as a researcher am I supposed to say, this is the absolute objective truth. I think it's preposterous. Yeah. And, and similarly, as artists, you know, we look at that. You look, you look at the kind of parade of white men in the in the European, you know, or in the Western canon, and so much of that narrative, all the way back to Vasari, where Vasari is basically writing love notes about Leonardo and how handsome he is, and and this idea that, gosh, you know, Leonardo was just a genius, and maybe, you know, maybe he was, yeah, but Leonardo had tons of other, you know, t had tons of handsome young men working in his workshop as well, and lots of wealthy patrons. And it's very telling of Leonardo's legacy that we can look back at the letters he wrote to pa uh, to patrons, and he's a clever manipulator. He's really great at asking for money yeah. and 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 developing ways to kind of support his pet projects. And what we get to see are these far removed and results. And I, I feel that's true for so many artists. That there's so many times that we see um, an artist work and we think, oh my gosh, this person's a genius. And, and, and again, maybe, maybe, 
Probably. But also, there were lots of other geniuses and yeah. lots of other people involved in that process. And I just I feel such a need to convey um, that sense of gratitude and the complexity of the process of making art and the process of research and 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 what constitutes scholarship in academia. I think it's I think it's crucial to the survival of this institution because so much of what higher education has become is this hierarchical thing that is dangerously close to the corporate model. That to whatever extent as women in academia, we can try to subvert that and we can try to remind people that laterality is possible, that we that we don't have to have this hierarchical series of of power structures. And wherever we can undermine those power structures, wherever we can raise questions and wherever we can kind of um, kind of point to the ridiculousness yeah. of the self-seriousness of the process, I think it's crucial. And, and um, it maybe isn't sexy in the artist as genius or academic as genius model, but I think it's sexy in a completely different way in this sense that there's something truly beautiful about stepping back and consciously and actively trying to be humble and, and consciously trying to give voice to um, uh, the multitude you know, the, the, yeah. the cacophony of what is creative process. Yeah. So that's the piece that you saw is yeah. a collaborative work that um, that draws on the writers of the writing of Hunter S. Thompson. It draws on um, conversations my husband and I had and it, and it draws on elements of chance. So all the poker chips in that piece were thrown out of the window of a car on my street in State College, Pennsylvania. And I woke up in the morning and it looked like a poker game had exploded on my front yard. And I was so excited by it. And I, I took photos of all the pieces. And then as I do, I gathered all of them up because as I said, I'm kind of a, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a collector. Yeah. And I don't collect everything unscrupulously. I'm not a hoarder. I wanted I wanted to find that on this podcast. <laughs> I don't want to go down that way. Um, but I am a conscious collector, and I felt there was something really interesting and provocative about this um, assortment of playing cards and poker chips. And so I gathered all of them up, and that's sort of the beginning of that work. And 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 it evolved. It through a series of many conversations and trying to make sense of what do I do with these things yeah. and trying to incorporate those pieces into a work. So the work began with the poker chips. Um, the current work that I have on view in the, um, in the gallery are actually, they're just photos from the performance of the piece Crone. So that's my most recent performance piece that I've developed. And this is probably the first true performance piece. So now I've entered into that strange twilight zone of how do you make sense of a performance piece when it's not being performed. And in particular because I got um, detained on Friday and wasn't able to actually do the full performance at the opening, uh, it complicates matters even further. So I have a friend who's a filmmaker in DC and in a perfect world she was going to help me do video documentation, Yeah. but um, she had taken enough vacation days when she was um, with her husband and family that she didn't feel comfortable trying to take off additional days during the holiday, and she's like, can we postpone this for spring? And I'm like, yes, but I kind of really actually want to go ahead and perform it. My hope is to perform this at the solstice and equinox. 
So this is a quarterly piece, and it's an ongoing piece until I'm, until I'm sort of philosophically done with it, but this was the first cycle of the piece. And my husband graciously offered to document it through photography. And the piece is um, partially about um, identity, personal identity, but it's also about identity more broadly. And so in thinking of kind of the historical ways of defining the ages of women, one way you might describe that is to say that there are three phases of life, to be a maiden, to be a matriarch, and to be a crone. And um, I'm, I'm in the thick of matriarch right now. In, in real life, I am in the middle of, of, of being a mom all the time, and it's been my entire adult life because I became a mom at 18 and I have a two and a half year old. So I am still in the middle of momming and I don't know if I'm going to have a break between momming and grandmomming. Um, the, we will, we shall see. There's nothing currently in the war. There's nothing currently in the works. So, um, so for that, I'm thankful. Um, temporarily, uh, I have a reprieve and I just have this linear, uh, have this linear process of being a mom. Um, but interestingly, uh, you know, I, I'm not a particularly vain person, so I hadn't been coloring my hair in grad, in grad school, and um, I moved here, I had a baby, and then I kept getting um, all these uncomfortable moments in public with complete strangers after we moved to the, the Mahoning Valley. And random people kept coming up to me and saying, your grandson is so adorable. Ugh. And I'm thinking, you know, there's about three steps in between there in the <laughs> conversation where we might arrive at a mutually, you know, hospitable end point. And we just skipped those steps altogether. And, and, I, and I really just found myself feeling hostile and frustrated. I was in a brand new job and I was in a brand new community and I had a brand new baby. I had a, I had an older child in college and a younger child in middle school. And I had postpartum depression. I really was struggling. I, I had a I had a long period of postpartum depression after I started working, and I felt increasingly isolated and frustrated. And I was just trying to figure out who the heck I was and what the heck I was doing. And so this piece is kind of about is is about kind of taking that awkward situation and and really kind of trying to figure out who the heck am I? Am I a mom? Am I a grandma? Am I a complete scattered mess? Um, and really trying to make sense of that. So initially the piece started with sense making and about trying to understand. Okay, well the, you know how do I want to define myself? And of course I want to take a situation and I want to find a way to have fun with it. So I'm like, well, what if I am a grandma? So I have two choices as a grandma. I can be a sweet grandma and I can bake cookies or I can be a witch. And I'm definitely gonna go full on witch. <laughs> um, so, so I got a witch costume. Uh, I borrowed a beautiful cape from my colleague, Megan List. Uh, Dr. List is in College of Education. And I was looking, I was searching for weeks and weeks on Amazon trying to find the perfect cape. And I brought it up to her and she goes, oh, I have a cape you could borrow. Of course. And she brought it to work and it's this fabulous cape and it's black on the outside and red on the inside. Whoa. And it's this great gold clasp. And 
like oh, I could not have found a better cape. It is literally the perfect cape. So I had found the perfect dress. I had the perfect boots, but I did not have the cape, and she loaned me the cape. Um, I'm going to have to do some serious negotiating to continue to have use of this yeah. cape for the next three performances of it, because I'd like to at least perform this piece through a full annual cycle. The piece is also about kind of trying to embrace the the confluence of um, external factors that complicate identity and this idea of embracing change in life it's about also um, confronting assumptions it's also about uh, you know it's about trying to say like you know uh, if I am a mom and I am a grandma and I am a novice and an expert and that's the other thing, being new faculty at a new university, you know, you leave grad school and you think, I'm so knowledgeable and I'm so well prepared, yeah. and then you arrive at a new place and all of the things you thought you knew and all of the sort of ways you thought you would be interpreted are not necessarily true. And I really felt professionally challenged sometimes. I really felt um, art education at YSU isn't necessarily viewed the same way it is at Penn State. Yeah. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it isn't. And I think that was a difficult thing to negotiate. The idea of being, um, you know, it was, it was humiliating sometimes. I think because people, I have, would have students come in and they would be very frustrated that we weren't doing holiday crafts. And um, I still have students who are sometimes frustrated, and they and they say, "Why can't we just do Christmas crafts?" And they look at me with sad, sad eyes and say, <laughs> "Because art education isn't always just about making things that are fun or beautiful. Art education is about asking big questions, and it's about creating an inclusive environment for creativity. And not everybody celebrates Christmas. Yeah, and that's the short answer." But it's a tough answer to keep giving out repeatedly. Yeah. And um, so this piece is also about that. It's about being um, it's about being a novice and an expert. It's about being a mom and a grandma. It's also about this, the changing roles of these secular places of wisdom. So all these places where we used to just say automatically, well, of course the knowledge is there. Of course the wisdom is there. It's about looking at the difference between wisdom and knowledge. It's about also looking at the changing role of places that hold both wisdom and knowledge. So the piece is performed in libraries and in museums and in public parks. And these are all places that are changing as society changes. The way people engage with parks, the connotation that parks have, is very different now than it was 50 years ago. And you can see the same for libraries and museums. I have Students sometimes will say, I don't know where to find resources. And of course, I'm I'm old school. I'm like, well, did you try the library? And I think, well, no, they yeah. didn't try the library because the library doesn't mean the same thing anymore. Right, yeah. It's, nobody uses the library the same way. The library is a great place to go and sleep during finals week. <laughs> yeah. um, and nobody knows the misery of a card catalog anymore. Oh yeah, I know. that weird. But the other weird and wonderful thing that would happen when you had to, when you survived the gauntlet of the card catalog, was to go and look for the thing on the shelf, and to find so many other things. And yeah. I think for so many artists and art students, that coincidence of of discovery, um, the same thing that would happen in record shops. Yeah, when you could go and you were looking for a specific album or CD and you would find like five other CDs. And 
And so I think kind of trying to make sense of that changing space. And I think in particular, YSU has been doing a bunch of reshelving. So I spent a lot of time in the empty shelves <laughs> and a lot of time in the full shelves. And I had very little interaction. I think people were just terrified that a woman was in all black sitting quietly in the <laughs> library. And I did this for several days for um, sometimes a half hour and sometimes for a couple of hours at a time. And I really tried to kind of focus on not... I wasn't reading, I wasn't on my phone, I was just trying to make myself available to people. And so um, I had more people talk to me in the museum because I think it reads more as something related to art and it's not quite as idiosyncratic, but it was still it was still weird for everybody. <laughs> and it was it was fun for me to kind of boldly go there to finally be the be the object of sculptural process. Yeah. How so in the library what were what were the conversations like? Did uh, people really engage, or, or even in the museum? Like, right. Well, I there was a there's a family that talked to me when I was in the Butler Museum, and they um, they first asked me if I worked there. Well, the man said, my my wife thought you were one of the sculptures that because there's a lot of oh yeah those those hyper realistic uh -huh. sculptures, and they're to scale, and there's the one of the security guards. So I'm two galleries down. And, um, and I was just sitting on the bench at the time. And he said, my wife thought you were a sculpture at first, and then we realized that you're a person, and we were just wondering what you're doing. And so I explained that, I, that, I'm, that I'm performing as the crone. And they said, well, what's the crone? And I said, well, in, you know, throughout literature and, and throughout sort of different frames of reference, the crone is... Um, can be kind of wicked, but is also kind of someone who shares wisdom and is, you know, is someone you seek out for wisdom. Mm -hmm. He goes, well, does it count, you know, if we didn't really seek you out? I'm like, well, it depends on what you, you know, what are you looking for? What do you want to know about? He's like, well, we just, we've never really been to the museum, so we're just kind of looking at art, and, and it kind of, you know, it trailed off, and we didn't get deeply engaged. I had another couple of students who I think I'm going to say they were trolling me, but we had a good time, and they just kept asking more questions, and I, I talked about the crones and, and Shakespearean works and things, and they were like, oh, yeah, I think I remember that, and, <laughs> and, and I had a feather. that The time that students talked with me, I, I was carrying a feather, and they were trying to ask me about the significance of the feather, and I talked to them about the... Uh, it was a feather that I picked up, and I talked about how, you know, things, objects can take on significance based on... You know, your own personal interpretation but that feathers in general also have meaning and I ask them and I'm, I'm a big in it's an unscripted piece so I'm big on using questions as a way to kind of move the conversation yeah. forward and so I'm like what do feathers mean to you and the guy's like I don't know Dumbo had a feather <laughs> so that was like I think it was just very there's a lot of discomfort there but I think <laughs> To the extent, with the two students that I talked to, um, they were really interested in this idea of the function of the museum. They had to be there for an assignment, and it wasn't my, it was lucky that it wasn't my assignment. <laughs> it would be kind of awkward that to find your professor in there doing a performance piece when you're completing assignment for their class. But yeah. <laughs> they were there for somebody else's class, and they were saying that they, you know, they really not thought about the museum as a place they would go to seek knowledge or wisdom that they it's not a place that either of them had gone intentionally before that's and, so sad well it was, I think it was a good conversation yeah. though because it gave them an opportunity to reflect on what at least the stated purpose of a museum yeah. they never really given thought to the idea that a museum was a place that 
holds knowledge. Yeah. And they didn't think of a museum as being related to libraries. And when I told them the piece is performed in libraries, museums, and public parks, that was a little confusing until I explained that those are all places where people have kind of traditionally gone to gain new knowledge or to have contemplation, quiet, you know, quiet reflection, things like that. And it was just, it was such a foreign concept. And I, I enjoy that. Um, I think for people uh, in generations before me, that is shifting. Museums and libraries and public parks mean different things now. Mm -hmm. And so there's something kind of archaic and strange in just a short period of time yeah. in, in occupying those spaces according to their stated 20th century purposes. Yeah. If my children walked up to you and you told them the same thing, I think that they do view the library even sadly as like, I don't think that they fully connect that it's for knowledge and learning in, in the same way as I did as a kid. And like you said, just spending time in the shelves and the library was my, my main jam, my hangout. So I definitely connect with that. I think that shift has, has happened pretty rapidly. Yeah. And for a number of different reasons. And my, my dissertation is an international study of people who take photographs of artworks in museums and share them to social media. So I want to say up front, I, I'm not an anti-social media person. Yeah. I don't think that there's anything inherently wrong with um, digital media. I'm not a technological determinist. I, I don't really, I, I don't subscribe to this idea that um, technology is shaping society in negative ways. Um, I think there are some, there, on an individual case-by-case -case level, there are people who struggle with um, the role of technology in their life. And if you multiply that, there's a there is an effect that you can see on a widespread level. But then to sort of say that it's because technology is inherently bad, I think is a is a dangerous ontological leap. Yeah. You can say that for any tool. Yeah. And whether that's digital media or that's pencils. You know, you think about how many times oh look back at the history of the United States and when um you know, there was a generation in the United States that said rock and roll was going to permanently corrupt the youth. It yeah. was going to destroy the fabric of society. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people who were in rock and roll at that time hoped that was true, but it didn't really play out that way. And then I think, you know, also the same terror ensued when color television was available widely mm -hmm. to the public. And they said, you know, kids are going to, kids are going to become, you know, blubbering masses they're not going to be able to think for themselves because they're going to be addicted to tv and so with any technology you know there's always a concern but um you know think i don't think that the availability and access to knowledge is a bad thing i think that the internet is fantastic in certain ways i think that the way that i can conduct research as a scholar is fantastic. I think about all the poor, miserable fools who had to actually use a typewriter to do a, you know, a two hundred plus page dissertation. Yeah. And I, I don't know if I could have hacked it back then. <laughs> I, I make a lot of errors when I type, and I think just the sheer number of pages I would have to throw away mm -hmm. would be so cost pro prohibitive and time prohibitive. I might have given up. Yeah. So you know, I'm really super thankful for my laptop and Microsoft Word and. Um, and, and laser printing, yes. <laughs> but it, you know, I mean, everything comes at a cost. There's the trade-off is that 
um, when you can get any piece of information from anywhere in the world at your fingertips, why are you going to go to the library? Yeah. I think that's strange, though, because everything's at our fingertips, but it is weird, the education that we receive that stops that growth and, like, progress, I think. It, like, we kind of hit, like, a stopping point. I know I know you have like an art history background and I think that even that is limiting from the education that we receive versus like what we put out into the world, I guess. Mm-hmm. So it's like you get all of this and it can be from a book and it can be from the internet, but it's all just, well, what did my professor tell me, you know, and then we can do research on those things, but then it kind of falls flat, I guess if you don't know the right avenues to seek out new information. Well, I that think that's sense? that's kind of why I was interested in art education. While I'm a curious person and I like to make things, and I am really excited by the challenge of trying to spark curiosity and trying to encourage people to challenge themselves. I'm really interested in how I can help initiate people into that sort of the exploration mode like where yeah. else can you find information yeah. how do you know that's true you know where'd you get this information is there other information out there mm-hmm. and to think about things like um, you know local archives or um, even City Hall you know find out about the you know find out find out about the history of your home yeah you know you can all there's there's all sorts of weird pockets of information out there and all sorts of different kinds of experiences that you can have. And then the idea of non-expert information, you know, ask your neighbor. Right. What other information can you get from that sort of, the, the from the um, tradition of oral history? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, I think for me, like, I, I don't know why, I can't speak for why most people get into education. I really don't understand people's motives sometimes. Um, I, I, and um, I think some people like, the idea of being in charge, uh, I'm, I'm not super excited about that aspect of it, but I am excited about taking on the challenge of trying to get people curious, to try to get people brave, and to try to get people to do things that they wouldn't normally do. Yeah. I see that as a more important role of an educator. Yeah. I agree with you completely. <laughs> Do you have like open social media accounts that I people do. can follow yeah, you yeah, and I, befriend um, you? I am Lilio Lilo. Nice. We'll yeah. put that in like the show notes. Yeah, I'm Lilio Lilo on Twitter. I'm Lilio Lilo on Instagram. I'm I am pretending to be a um, food stylist and lifestyle blogger currently. This on is my favorite Instagram. thing you're doing. Yeah, yeah. No. I'm just having I'm having a lot of fun cooking and taking photos of food because I I'm fascinated with food culture, and um, on on Instagram in particular and engaging with all the strange people. I have like I have a comedian who takes pictures of food while she's on tour following me and we've been we've had some great conversations. <laughs> because I like this is very tongue in cheek for me and and but it's also about it is about sort of being accountable to trying to take better care of myself mm-hmm. and trying to kind of embrace the sort of nurturing side of me and and I love to cook, you yeah. Know? And it, it's fun to try to take pictures of food that that doesn't look gross. Like yeah. it's it's actually pretty challenging. A challenge, yeah. <laughs> you have to give a lot of thought to like how you scoop something out and put it on the plate, <laughs> and make sure your plate doesn't have some schmutz on it or something. So yeah. make sure you have lights on in the room. I have a tendency to eat in a dark room because I'm just you know it's just shame for me. <laughs> oh, uh, just kidding. No. 
It's only because there's so much butter in there. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Yeah, thanks. Lillian. Oh, I, I have a website. Oh, yeah. It's LillianLLewis.com. It's all one word. Awesome. I, it used to be just Lillian Lewis, but then I, I let my Squarespace account expire, oh, and yeah. somebody bought it, and they wanted to charge me $600 for my own name. So it's now LillianLLewis.com. Nice. And I need to update that website. So if you have questions and you don't see examples of the works I've talked about, just email me a reminder. And I'll, <laughs> I'll get around to it eventually. <laughs> Thanks, Squarespace. Yeah. yeah. This, this, this episode, episode brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Thanks. <laughs> Now we're, now we're an official podcast. All yeah. right. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. <laughs>